0: Hey, this is the HSJ Health Check podcast and I'm your host Annabelle Collins. This week I'm joined by Lawrence Dunhill, Emily Townsend and Alistair McClellan. and on this episode we'll be covering what's next for the Agenda for Change pay deal, a change of the guard within NHS England's leadership and the ongoing care crisis in mental health that is seeing patients treated in inappropriate care settings. Let's start this week with the Agenda for Change pay deal. Um, I'm coming to you, Lawrence. Lawrence, you I think particularly enjoyed the ins and outs of the staff NHS staff council um, decision on this, um, doing some top pie charts on Twitter. Could you remind listeners what, well, what the outcome of the deal was just to get started on this on this topic?
1: Yeah, sure. I uh, so I don't usually follow the unions that closely, but I found it really frustrating um that no one was sort of really clearly explaining the staff council process and um and how those how those votes worked and everything. Mm. Um and so started trying to f- figure out exactly what weighting each union got. Um be- because the big results had come through, the RCN um voting against the deal and Unison voting for it. Um, and so it actually meant that some of the smaller unions were going to have a, a, a say on which way the staff council swung and so it turned out that about 61 of percent of the weighted votes on the staff council went the way um, of, of saying yes to the deal um, so uh, and some some of those votes were closed some of them not so much the, the four unions that said no were the RCN, Unite Society, Radiographers and College of Podiatry, a much smaller one, um, the RCN being the big one. Um, and the, the government have the government have said they will now move to implement the deal. And so staff will actually get the money in, in their pay packets. Um, those four unions that rejected um, could hold further strikes because they remain in dispute just despite the staff council overall voting in favour and and so that that's going to be interesting now to see whether they do go ahead with further strikes. The, the RCN is by far the biggest of, of those and and it and it has to reballot its members to get a new mandate Um, and if they do get it that that will be extremely interesting kind of around the country because they. It, trust will probably be d- affected in different ways because some will some will have lots of nurses that are RCN members, and some will have will be dominated by Unison, which has a, lot, a very large union membership as well. Um, and so you you may get trusts that are quite badly affected by the RCN walkout, um, and others where others not so much because they have more Unison members. It, it will also create a kind of Interesting dynamic where you have a mix of Unison and RCN within a trust, where you've got some um, where Unison members are not on the picket line and RCN members are. Um, but w- whether it will come to that is 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 unclear because they're they're going for a national ballot this time, which means they they are they're balloting all their members in the country, whereas previously they kind of they. They went for local ballots, which is which makes it easier to get the strike mandate because you can kind of target the most unionised um, trusts. Um, the the reason that they're doing that is because it will be harder now because there's sort of they're, there's a minority of unions that are still in dispute, so it's it's kind of harder to to do it on your own. Um, and leaders will want to feel like they've got the full backing of their. Of, of membership to carry on. Um, but there's a, there's also a cynical view saying that, well, Pat Cullen the, the chief executive of the RCN, did actually recommend this deal to members who rejected it. And so do they really want um, to, 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 to continue the dispute? And are they going for this national ballot because they know it's actually harder to get? Um, and so it's really difficult to call um, because Partly because the RCN is such a divided um, union, its its past over the sort of last ten years is well documented of the sort of difficulties they've had, um, but it might explain some of the decisions that they've made in this dispute, which seem quite odd um, lo- looking from the outside. the the first The first thing they did was to sort of to split from the other unions to put a number on their pay demand where whereas other, the other unions um didn't put a number on it. They just said they wanted something that was inflation busting. The the RCNs were split away from that and did a nurse's first campaign asking for 19%, which kind of raised raised the bar but also looked unresolvable in the negotiations because it was it was a it seemed like a long way for the government to move. Um, and and that possibly then meant that um, members felt disappointed at the deal that was then reached and recommended by Pat Cullen um, and voted against it. The, the Sorry, come in, Annabelle.
0: Well, no, I was just going to say, and it's um, that I haven't seen any detail on what they're, they're asking for this time round with the balloting. I mean, maybe it, it's yet to come, but there's, as you said, kind of nurses first and also pushing for a separate nurses pay spine, which is Really, I think people have said it's quite divisive because it would, you know, it would would pull nurses out of the agenda for change contract, and you know, it it would um, be may perhaps could cause kind of uh, divisions between the different uh, staff groups in it. Um, I I get the impression that they're still pushing for that quite heavily this time.
1: Yeah, and and that's that's certainly kind of in in the background and possibly explains why they why they wanted to sort of split away from the other unions in in terms of putting a figure on their demands and not being not being too fussed about kind of disrespecting the the staff council process um, because that was that was the odd, other sort of decision that looked odd was that when the uh, on on their on the RCN's rejection of the deal although the lots of other unions hadn't announced their results yet Um, it it wasn't going to be decided for several weeks, but the RCN immediately announced that they would take further strikes, um, not knowing how how the whole staff council was going to go, which appeared sort of rushed and disrespectful. But maybe, yeah, maybe they were trying to actually create a wedge between themselves and the other unions, because their ultimate aim is to separate themselves onto a new pay spine. but then it it does seem like that decision was quite rushed because they they then it turned out they badly misjudged the legal position on on holding a fresh round of strikes um it, with the with the walkout kind of at the start of may the, they were taken to court and it turned out they didn't actually have the mandate for that so that it, which was a pretty embarrassing sort of situation for the leadership um and it, interestingly there was a uh, peter carter the former chief exec of the rcn did an interview in the telegraph um last week actually coming out sort of criticizing some of those decisions and saying saying the the union seemed confused and he didn't he didn't support more strikes but I but i suppose I should.
2: the uh, the rcn responded by saying that he was a discredited figure, which he very much isn't. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, if I was a betting man, I would suspect there may be legal letters flying backwards and forwards uh, uh, between uh, between the two. It was, you know, it, it would take a long time to tell the story of how the LCN has got itself into this particular position. But um, when you find the leadership of it, you know, uh, attacking a pretty well respected um, uh, uh, previous, uh, previous leader uh, in such uh, intemperate terms, I think it's an indication of an organisation with um, quite a few problems.
1: It, 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 uh, we were trying to work out what that might actually refer to weren't we and uh, none of us seemed to know but I did actually bump into the um telegraph reporter who wrote the story last night at an event and she said the the rest of the quote was cut short and it and it relates to the um issues of um that the the RCN has had with a sort of macho and sexist culture which a report found a couple of years ago and so uh, sort of suggested that uh, while peter in, peter carter was in charge of the union for sort of seven eight years so it was in charge during this period when this culture was in place but that is i don't think there's any we certainly haven't seen any evidence that he was yeah I mean, inv- peter inv- peter carter left directly 2000- with any of that
2: peter carter left in 2013 it was noticeable when peter was there that um uh, uh given if you look back before him with the um uh, reign of Beverly Malone um there were quite a lot of internal issues there during Peter's um uh term there were relatively few issues doesn't mean there won't get stuff ones going on but you know fact is i think the most substantive thing that's been leveled at peter is um the RCN's record um uh the criticisms leveled in the francis report at the RCN um <clears throat> Um, uh, at the RCN, though having gone back and looked at that, it's as, uh, there are criticisms of the RCN, but there are also criticisms that the RCN wasn't properly listened to <laughs> by other players, uh, and I think it's the NMC that comes out of it badly. But anyway, maybe we should draw a veil over such um, uh, 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 personal, personal pain.
1: Yeah, I just want to say one more thing about Pat Cullen, uh, that is that. Although I, I sort of, you know, agree with Peter Carter to an extent that some of the decisions in this dispute do look strange. and um, But she is leading a union which we know is extremely divided and and has a lot of um, ill feeling within it uh, between various factions. And she may be doing the best possible job that it, that's possible to do um, when you're in charge of a union that is so divided.
2: Mm, and, that's a, yeah. and, Indeed, so I remember talking to a, <clears throat> a BMA chair a few years ago, and I said I asked him what what uh, what's the number one job of a BMA chair? Expecting him to talk about um, you know uh, increasing terms and conditions for doctors or you know improving health services. He says the most important thing for a BMA chair to do is to make sure the BM, BMA doesn't splinter into uh into its various factions to keep the various factions um uh, more or less on the same page because that really you know that maximizes your potential but your potential influence because as anyone who knows medical politics gps are always falling out with consultants indeed you know um, anesthetists are always falling out with surgeons um so if you can keep that together that is that's the real that's the real secret and I think we're seeing and it's less of an issue in nursing but it still is an issue as as you have illustrated Lawrence
0: and I think just to round this one off Lawrence um when will so all staff will get the pay rise even staff who rejected it when will they expect to see it um in their pay packets
1: I think we put a story out this week, haven't we, saying they'll get it in the summer. Which yes. um, uh, I'm not sure we had a specific date on it. No,
0: there's no specific date. Although Unison are calling for it to be in June, um, as soon as possible. Um, and they
2: well, still. I, I, I'd imagine. I'd imagine the government want it to, would want it to get into nurses' pay pack before that ASEAN ballot goes out. Yes.
0: Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, which yeah, which is they their balloting for striking between June and December. So yeah. Um and also do we have an idea yet of where the money's going to come from to pay for this pay award?
1: Uh, n- not exactly. It's been it's been quite um opaque around that, but the the government have said that we no, as they often do, there'll be no impact on frontline services. Um and but yeah, the 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 division of how much will come out of the existing NHS budget and new money for the Treasury, we're not sure on yet. Um, I'm pretty sure the Treasury are looking at different um, pots of cash that they have given to the NHS uh, before, like the uh, money for that was supposed to be incentive funding for elective activity last year. Um, which was supposed to be clawed back if trusts didn't meet their targets. Um, and uh, most trusts didn't meet their targets. So a lot a of money should, in theory, be clawed back. And the, But the assumption has been that it wouldn't be. But uh, so, so I think it's likely the Treasury is sort of uh, trying to negotiate by by holding on to those sort of funding pots and also looking at some of the big cash balances that have built up at, in some areas of the NHS over the last few years and trying to get their hands on some of that cash that's just sitting on balance sheets?
2: If I was a betting man, I would suggest there would be very little, if if any, new money from the Treasury. And it might come, uh, you know, so it will come from all the areas that Lawrence has talked about. Um, NHS England has, to a certain extent, various contingency funds. So does the Department of Health. Because of course the Department of Health gets given the money, and the Department of Health then gives the money to the NHS. Well, not all of it; it retains some central funding. Um, I, I doubt very much whether there will be any uh, much, or indeed any new money from uh, b- 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 from the tre- from the Treasury. Um, <clears throat> you know, after all, we are still waiting for uh, the fully costed workforce plan and uh the last uh and the uh, and the funding for the new hospitals program so there's quite a lot of other things where the treasury has got to potentially produce new money and new long-term commitments um so the pay uh pa- paying for the pay is not the only thing that is on the treasury's to-do list
1: and it's and very a, possible that those things will get will get pushed back now even even further than they already have been.
0: Or cut yeah. substantially and be much less yeah. useful. <laughs> um, all right. Um I think let's move on to the next topic, which is NHS England and Alistair. And there are some um big people moves going on. So who is leaving?
2: Well, um uh, so um, Sir so David Sloan the Chief Operating Officer, will retire in September. And um, uh, Tim Ferris, the Transformation Director, will return to America in September. Now, uh, this is probably the biggest change in NHS leadership since Amanda Pritchard took over from Simon Stevens uh, in 21. In, in but perhaps, given that that was a you know uh, 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 a much expected uh, 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 change, you perhaps have to go back to the uh, uh, Ian Dalton and Matthew Swindells leaving as the chief executive of NHS Improvement and the deputy chief executive of NHS England uh, as the sort of you know last sort of really seismic change. Now, I've been having some conversations with people uh, and I thought I would bring the podcast um, an exclusive behind the, <laughs> behind the scenes view of what's actually going on. So I'll come to David Sloman and what's happening in the operations space in a minute. But I just little want to talk a little bit about Tim Ferriss. So, I mean, with Tim Ferriss, I think it was really a case of right man, wrong time. For a long time before the pandemic, there was a increasingly as conversations took about taking a system approach, people were say, well, we need somebody, a senior medic to come in and drive the changes in pathways. In other words, how care is actually delivered, um, uh, um, uh, making best use of technology, et cetera to go along with these structural changes, the decision-making changes, uh, flows of funding. So there's absolutely a need for somebody like that to come in and do the sort of, you know, uh, the hard wiring of pathways, uh, talking to medics, incorporating the the latest advances in medicine and technology and marrying that up with the, the structural changes. Um, and Tim Ferriss I think was not quite the perfect person for that job, I don't think that that person probably exists, a very good person. He was a doctor, he is a doctor, he's done lots of transformation, he understands, he's a very um, respected doctor, he understands technology etc. He was the right person for that job. Unfortunately um, uh, he arrived in 2021 um, <clears throat> um, uh, um, as the pandemic, you know, while the pandemic is still much, pretty much going on. And I think with the hope, with the expectation that things would get back to normal relatively quickly. Well, as we uh, much comment on this podcast, that hasn't happened and it isn't going to happen for quite some uh, quite some time. So. Now, whether he should have cut, whether he actually should have read the runes better uh, um, is, a, is another matter. His, his, his drawing into the NHS was, you know, David Pryor, Dido Harding, to a certain extent, Simon, Simon Stevens. Those people are all gone now. Uh, and he find himself working with people who um, um, had other priorities, and perfectly understandably so, in recovering from the NHS. Also, of course, he arrived at the time when there was a decision to merge NHS and NHS Digital into NHS England. Uh, so there was lots of action in the merger space. So basically, he became somebody overseeing this huge organisational redevelopment, which is definitely not <laughs> what he signed up for. Um, uh, and um I didn't really play to his core strengths or what, you know, what he should he he, should have been doing. So, you know, Tim Ferriss's involvement, it it came from a good place, I think, but it is a failed experiment. And, you know, it is that we see again, you know, as with comedy. Secret of NHS leadership is timing. But let's move on now to talk a bit about. David Sloman. So um, let's talk a little bit. Uh, let's just talk about David's career. One of the great NHS uh, 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 leadership uh, uh, careers. I first got to know David uh, 20 years ago when he was uh, chief executive of of, um, of of the Royal Free. Well, oh, I got to know him when he was chief executive of the Royal Free. That wasn't quite 20 years ago. But I mean, there he was um, pretty much in the shadow of Sir Robert Naylor. Uh, Chief executive of University College Hospitals London, but David's a clever man. He quietly learned what he needed to learn from uh, Robert, what to do and what not to what not to do, and has become an increasingly influential figure um, uh, uh, over the years, both in London uh, uh, and then nationally. So you know we wish him a, 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 a very good retirement. Um, now what's what is what are they planning in the future well david goes on until september then jim Mackey is coming not underlined many times to be an interim chief operating officer nhs england will have no chief operating officer when david sloman goes jim is going to run that directorate so sort of be the you know the the, the boss that everybody reports up to uh but i understand that he has no intention of operating as a coo and everybody who's listening into their podcast will know what i mean by operating as a, a COO. partly because um he hasn't got any more time to give to the role he's already of course the national elective director while running Northumbria, one of the best trusts in the country, he hasn't got any more time to give to that. No, no doubt, he'll have to give a bit more, but you know, generally, he's not going to give that that, that time. So the, that begs the obvious question: Why do that? That's a pretty complicated thing to do. To have, you know, not to replace the coup. The coup is a pretty central <laughs> figure. Particularly when you're doing in a massive um, uh, um, electri- uh, elective uh, recovery and emergency care is really challenging as well. So let me bring you the exclusive Annabelle of why that arrangement um, uh, is is in place. There are uh, three reasons. Um, the first is it's the ju- it's the judgment of NHS leadership that getting sign off for a new um um, chief operating officer from the department of health from steve barclay would be a nightmare at the moment we have reported on the fact that there are a large number of um alb positions which have been put up to the department of health for sign off and are still Uh, And they're still waiting. Annabelle, you've written about what's going on. The the, the CQC is one non-executive director falling under a bus from being in in Quarant. And the NHS England leadership's judgment is it's a battle. They just don't want to have, have to fight at the moment. The second reason is you could say, well, there is a deputy chief operating officer. Why don't they just step up? Uh, Deputy Chief Operating Officer is uh, uh, Sarah Jane Marsh, particularly looking after emergency care, but has that deputy uh, 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 coup title. Um, And the judgment there is Sarah Jane is relatively new in that national post and deserves the time to get her feet under under the table. Um, The third reason is, and I think this is perhaps the most interesting thing, is that when Dave, so David Sloman leaves, it will be about a year ish to a general election, and there is a certain sort of wouldn't call it nervousness but a reluctance to appoint a very senior uh um uh NHS figure. I mean, basically, the coup is the sum, but you know, they're effectively the deputy, they take out if. if you know, something happened to Amanda in the interim period. The coup would would have to take over, um, uh, um, uh, and there is a reluctance to appoint such a senior pers- person in the in the run up to the general election. And of course, we're all assuming the general election could happen in the autumn of two thousand um, uh, <clears throat> and twenty four. Uh, you know, late autumn, of course, it could happen before then they could they could go for May, probably won't, but they could go for may and I think that's really interesting because it shows that from now from this point onwards, the NHs is effectively in some kind of election per period. It makes a difference that there's a lot there's a significant chance of a change in government, so I think you will see other decisions being put off on the basis that well we might get a different government so you know maybe we should we should hold hold fire now all that said i think if there is an opportunity to promote sarah jane into that role basically um uh she she's happy she's happy to take the step to step up that she feels that she's in control of the uh, gender. She's learned what she needs to learn, and they can square it with the various politicians, Barclay and Streeting, that they will take that oppo- that opportunity. She is definitely the person in waiting, as Caroline Clark is definitely the person in waiting to be the uh, London London regional director. But for but for similar reasons, though not exactly the same reasons, that. Um, Though that that um, those moves may take some significant time to actually manifest themselves, so I just thought I would bring you that little um, uh, behind the scenes peep, Annabelle.
0: Thank you very much. It's interesting about the um, not wanting to make any appointments as the election is is coming up next year. Would it not? I wonder. Would surely they might want to appoint people. Um, and kind of get it in quickly before the election if, if you know they're quite keen to promote sarah jane
2: i think that bird has flown i think simply because i th- i think they have been pressing to try and get a a, a, a number of posts done before this sort of perder period locks in um uh, caroline carp's appointment as the london regional director is the the most uh the most obvious one Everybody knows that her name has been put up to the Department of Health for the for the job. Everybody knows it. Um, Yet it's not being signed off. And I think what I see this is is more a reflection of uh, um, a reflection of reality. They are saying let's just recognise the fact that it's going to be really hard to put somebody into this full time post in the run up to the general election. And maybe we actually, given our candidate, Sarah Jane, is, she's just become the deputy, maybe that's a bit unfair on her as well. So um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think it's they're making the decision for two reasons. But it is a reflection of reality is that, you know, a lot of decisions and not just appointments are going to have to wait, not for weeks or months, but potentially for years, because let's face it, if we did get a new government, they're going to want to, you know, kick the tires and think around. So, you know, it could be until summer of 2025 before um, a lot of big decisions uh, get made. So we'll see a lot of incremental decisions, a lot of workarounds, etc. But, you know, twas ever thus.
1: It does seem very odd that, that, I mean, this is arguably the sort of most challenging period in the NHS's history operationally, and it's not going to have a dedicated Chief Operating Officer.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, there is a big question about how this is going to work. Um, I fear that Jim may find himself, Jim Mackey may find himself doing a lot more Coup type stuff than he wants to do, even if he is not the coup. And of course, we'll see uh, Sarah Jane t- take a much uh, a much higher profile. But to a certain extent, Lawrence, you know, what can NHS England do? Um, I was talking to um uh, somebody very senior at NHS England, um, who went to see a hospital trust chief executive, and they said to them, you know. What can I do for you? You know, how can I help you get the, um, uh, um, you know, get your performance back on track? You know, sort of veil the sort of veil thing, which was your performance is very good enough, it needs to get better. What can I do? And this chief executive, um, who'd been around a bit, said to this senior NHS England figure, "Well, I need, you know, I need this number of consultants in this specialty, this number of specialist nurse, etc., etc., etc." Uh, can you deliver those for me? And the senior NHS England England figure said, fine, I won't ask again. Because there is, you know, there is limited capacity for NHS England uh, 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 to do much other than to say, keep going, lads and lasses.
0: Um, Alistair, do you know what's next for David?
2: Uh, I haven't. No, I haven't talked to David about uh, what it what is. I mean, you know uh, he uh, uh, a lot of people have um um uh, been expecting to retire for for for, 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 for some time um uh, um so and he's got plenty of uh, he's got plenty of interest um of course Sir David is one of the probably the main driver of the idea of the joint chair uh and um you know there are a few joint chair posts um uh, uh, around in the NHS so I think everyone um, uh, expects him to turn up as the chair of one or one trust or another, but David's his own man, so you know we we, we shall uh, uh, we'll have to wait and see. I think
1: there was uh, at our summit the other week um, someone made, someone uh, one of the delegates made a comment to me, after David appeared on the on the video link in one of the sessions, um, saying he he was the he was the pioneer of the open button shirt. There, there seem to be a there seem to be a lot of people at the summit, especially in the evening, with with quite a few of their buttons undone, um, and, and sort of saying, "Oh, David sloan has been doing that for years."
2: Yeah, his 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 influence will live on.
0: It's a style icon, unexpected. Um, thanks very much, and now let's move on to our last topic for this episode, Emily, uh, bringing in you, and um, well, it sort of springs from um your column this week, um, where you've explored the. Um that patients um, critically unwell with eating disorders are being um, discharged from acute hospitals despite without a care plan, despite guidelines warning them not to. Perhaps you could just um, kind of summarise what, what has emerged.
3: Yeah, so this problem um, overall is that there are a lack of specialist beds and specialist mental health beds, um, and that is leading to acute hospitals now getting overwhelmed themselves. Unable to care for and treat very sick people um, and particularly people with eating disorders who present with really kind of um, clinical emergencies. So essentially new guidance last year was brought in by the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which were emergency guidelines which essentially provide advice to acute hospital leaders um, on assessing conditions like eating disorders, which can lead patients into a state of clinical emergency. They also outline how to kind of manage patients, physical, nutritional and psychiatric care. Um, But what the column um, revealed this week is that we've been made aware of quite a few gaps in implementation of the new guidelines within acute hospitals. And obviously, as they are um, with heard of a quite a big increase in mental health patients being kind of put into acute hospital beds because they don't have space within tier four um like you know specialist mental health beds and that is essentially leading to people have, like really kind of critically unwell with eating disorders and other mental health conditions being put into acute beds and the problem you have there is that you have um a really kind of distinct lack of training of doctors and nurses in how to deal with these kind of critical um, situations, particularly as they are mental health related. So there's one case which I referenced in my newsletter uh, this week, um, which was actually raised with Claire Murdoch in a, a panel before MPs, which essentially is uh, a patient who was discharged with a BMI of eight um, with a little bit of context, the body mass index of 18 or below is considered underweight. So this is somebody who's in a really kind of distressing kind of state and really, you know, really, really unwell. That patient was discharged from hospital, acute hospital um, without the care plan in place. Um, Claire Murdoch, National, Clinical, sorry, National Director, she um, said that she obviously wants to look into this individual case, but she also said that emergency guidelines aren't enough um, on their own to keep patients safe and that guidance has to be supported with training. However, um, there's also that obviously the, the underlying problem of the fact that there aren't enough specialist beds to care for the rising demand. And also just in, in general, there are massive vacancy rates within inpatient services and mental
0: health. so um obviously the the bed shortages and vacancy rates have have been a problem for a long time um and there's not going to be a quick fix to this i wonder if you've kind of um from speaking to people what do they what do people want to see happen to 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 um ensure uh, patients are treated in the best places i suppose
3: I think for acute hospital leaders, I think what they want is, you know, really improved training Um, they are feeling very overwhelmed. And um, obviously mental health trusts are very overwhelmed as it is. But I think underpinning everything is more staff um, and increase in workforce. So um, Amanda Pritchard was actually in the same um, panel. And, you know, she said that although there has been significant growth in the workforce, um, you know, available to support people with mental health conditions, there has been um, particularly growth in camps. um I think it was over a sort of 40% jump, um, which was, you know, unexpected. However, um, that is kind of with a backdrop of huge um, demand rising throughout the pandemic. But she also said there are really significant vacancies. And um, so she said that acute inpatient areas have vacancy rates of around 20%, which is impacting on better availability and patient care. And that's kind of increased Um, But in terms of like the the main thing that mental health CEOs want is more staff so that they can care for for people um, in a better environment and to keep hospital leaders are saying to us that, you know, they want um, more training so that they can support these people. But one of the sort of main problems, particularly with people with eating disorders, is that they have to be um, go through a refeeding process, and that is really quite. Um, you know, the patient is very dependent and will have to be cared for for sort of two to three weeks, and that means occupying a bed for two to three weeks. And what acute hospital leaders are saying is that they simply don't have the beds, and um, they've already got pressure from you know physical health conditions. They're now having kind of lots of people come in with mental health conditions and an increase and they're saying, you know, we need more staff, more training to deal with this.
0: Mm. Um, And I suppose what's is there any what's next? Um, Is there anything, um, I suppose, any immediate things being implemented uh, to try and uh, improve care?
3: Not really. So um, obviously there's the long term plan um, and there's some various plans for workforce there. And there isn't really obviously that these guidelines have been implemented and what um, is is that they've only been in existence for a year. However, there have been sort of previous iterations of the guidelines. I think there isn't anything sort of immediate that we're kind of aware of that is going to kind of come in and, and change change the situation. Um, but I think you know that the, the commitments to trying to increase workforce. There are there is concern among mental health CEOs at the moment that there isn't going to be much detail in terms of how you know for mental health staffing and the upcoming workforce plan. So there isn't any kind of immediate quick fixes. Um, and the Department of Health um, representative on the panel before MPs said, you know, there's no silver bullet. This is very much tied to workforce. All of these kind of service delivery issues. Are you know inextricably linked with with workforce. So until there's growth in those areas, it's, it's just going to kind of get get worse, unfortunately. um there's a lot of stuff being done about length of stay and trying to kind of encourage um, discharge. Um, lots of kind of work with social care to try and like heal it at that end. Um, But bed occupancy has kind of been above 95% for for a very long time Um, since the start of 2022. It's been running very hot, as Claire Murdoch said in an interview with us last year. Um, But at the moment, it doesn't seem like there's any quick fix. It's very much a case of Claire is saying she's hopeful that performance will improve um, and that there's supposed to be new standards coming in. Um, under the clinical review of standards, which essentially are are for community-based mental health care and also emergency waiting times, but they are still very much in kind of a stalling phase. Consultation ended in 2021. We still haven't heard anything about them. So at the moment, it's very much a case of they need to bring these in so that performance can be checked and that mental health trusts can kind of have a standard to perform against. But at the moment, it seems as if it's kind of overwhelming in in both acute hospitals and mental health
1: trusts. Just more generally, Emily, you mentioned the long term plan there. So in sort of 2019, I think the the mental health sector got a funding deal then that it was that it was, I think it was pretty happy with, wasn't it? Um, and, and in Simon Stevens, people felt they had a a national leader who who backed mental health strongly. Um, obviously COVID came along and and, and disrupted the long-term plan. Um, how do, do, how do mental health leaders feel now about the level of support they're getting nationally? Is a sort of new deal needed for mental health?
3: I think they feel supported. I think when I've spoken to kind of national leaders and, and um, mental health CEOs, I think they are, they do feel like the you know, under pre-charge, and that there is still kind of a focus on mental health, that's sort of similar to what there was under Simon Stevens. However, I think it is because of the pandemic and because of these huge increases in demand. I think it's it's kind of totally changed the game, um, and I think there is, you know, when I was spoken to mental health CEOs about this, there is kind of concern that. Um, you know we've come to the end of the period there are lots of targets that have been missed and there have been things that have done well so there's been expansion in mental health teams in schools and crisis crisis lines the 24-hour ones were rolled out ahead of schedule however you have major problems with out of placements that deadline is 2021 and um, you have lots of things that haven't been met so I think that there are some um, quite a few CEOs that are feeling like They're constantly fighting fires and that there does need to be kind of a refresh and a fresh look at what what we do next. And a lot of it is about getting them more staff um, and being able to kind of better care for patients because nobody wants to care for very sick patients in this way. But this is how it's turned
0: out. Right. Thanks very much, Emily. I think this is a good point to wrap up the podcast for this week. Just a reminder, the Health Check podcast is available on our website and across all main podcast channels. And please don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks very much for listening and we'll be back next week.